Hello, good day, and welcome. It's our podcast, What Freaks Out Founders. And we're a little different than the usual startup hero worship podcast. We want to talk about the fear, the anxiety, the neuroses that can freak out founders of all sizes, all shapes, all descriptions, and honestly, all levels of success. My name is Matt Toner. I'm your host. I come from that space. I know folks in that space. And I know it's not all sunshine and roses. With us to help make this happen is my producer, Mike Rosen, and he's going to help us today talk about all those things, those neuroses that founders will recognize to themselves, what they're trying to confront, what they're trying to overcome, and in some cases, what they're trying to harness. So stay tuned, enjoy the guests. They are amazing, and they're going to unpack their wisdom, their learnings, and the things that frighten them. So stay tuned. This is What Freaks Out Founders. So one thing, if you're getting into the start game, that you will definitely get used to, I think, over time, if you stick with us long enough, you're going to get used to hearing the word no an awful lot. Or uh, maybe not no so much, no not say no, but not yet, come back to us when you hit X milestone, maybe reapply for this, come back to us later, deadline's passed, whatever. And yet you just learn to develop a thicker and thicker skin, you take this as a given, you move ahead. and. People will tell you it gets easier. People will tell you you'll get used to it. People will tell you don't let it you. And it does. It still does. It does every single time. I wear every scar on my hide as a badge of honor and a social part. And our guest today is from that thing. He's not going to tell you. His name is Derek Zito. He runs Walnut. It's an interesting startup. He's a ghost on many startups. And he is here to tell you that he loves doing work. He pushes ahead. He's surgical. He perseveres. But hearing the word no still difficult and i think you can turn that into a strength so let's dive into our conversation with derek zeno the founder ceo and driving force behind walmart so joining us on this episode is derek zeno he is a co-founder of his most recent venture which is a purely virtual company purely distributed company which is more and more the norm nowadays company's called walnut which you know, I won't. Uh, I won't try to explain what they do. It's not necessarily implied in the name. This is not a nut company or a wall company. They do something rather different. Uh, hey, Derek, maybe you can take us through really, really quickly what your latest venture is about. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. Walnut. Uh, we are actually all about embedded insurance, and we purposely did not put insurance or policy or anything of that in the name because we want it to be a little bit more fun, a little bit more interesting, and. How do we make it easy and convenient for our partners who are really the way we get to market to be able to offer insurance solutions in an embedded fashion where it's more convenient for the customer and we think everybody will win in the end. Huh. Interesting. For for people like, I always sort of talk about my companies or what I'm up to in ways my grandmother would understand. What is embedded insurance? Yeah, I, I think embedded insurance is really the notion that you'll be able to get insurance alongside products and services while you're buying it instead of having a separate motion where you are buying product A and maybe mortgage is a really good example of this. You go and get a mortgage these days mm -hmm. and then you have to go separately and get home insurance. Same for auto. You buy a car, you separately have to get auto insurance. And for something like a mortgage, you could actually with the data that that individual already has or that partner already has, be able to go through one motion, get not just your mortgage, but get home insurance, get life insurance, because now you have an obligation you need to take care of all without having to sort of repeat yourself and provide incremental information. It'll be almost seamless. Like you won't even know that you're going through a separate insurance shopping experience. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, it is funny how some of the people we have on the show 
their ventures do connect in some ways to kind of an unease or some kind of anxiety. Uh, insurance might be one of those places because insurance is really a funny business where you're betting something bad will happen to you and you want to hedge or mitigate that. And the insurer company is basically saying, no, no, we think you'll be okay. Right. You know, and many people that I speak with kind of talk with the insurance that they have or they don't have. Uh, it is sort of a source of anxiety around their life, a slight background radiation level of anxiety. You know, do they have enough or do they have the right amount or are there some conditions or clauses that are going to kind of bite me in the ass later on? I mean, yeah. do you guys, I mean, I know you're virtual, you're online, you're digital, but I mean, how do you speak to that psychology of the person who wants to find insurance? Because it's probably like if you haven't gone to the dentist for three years, you're probably, you know, you got to go, you know, you got to yeah. do it, but you're probably a little anxious about those first moments in the chair. Yeah. And I think that, like you mentioned, insurance is a funny business in that it's something that you don't necessarily want to think about, but you know, when you need it, you actually needed to have bought it previously, right? So it's not something you can sort of do at moment in time. And you have to think ahead a little bit. And that's back to why we think it's important to offer insurance alongside where there's increased risk. And that's the most obvious and best point in time. Like when you're healthy, that's when you should buy you know, life insurance. So it's something that you should do when you're younger, but you might not think about it until you're older. And if you think about what you're doing with startups these days, like venture capitalists are they can't buy uh, startup insurance. They have to build a portfolio. And right. ultimately, that's what it's all about. It's about hedging risk, mm -hmm. right? The insurers are out there and they want to write a pool of risk against a whole host of individuals or businesses. And some of those will be good and some of those will be bad. But for the individual, you're trying to head off this tail risk of something bad really happening that might put you and your family in a really sticky situation. So it's this protection notion that people don't necessarily think of, but that's part of our goal is to be able to help them get in front of it. So what drew you to this? I mean, not everyone has like an X-Men origin story that brought them to where they are today. But on the other hand, was there, did you have a personal connection to the idea of insurance or the importance of it? Or uh, did you just feel that not enough people are paying attention to this, therefore there could be a big business opportunity? Or was it more that just people should be doing this, it's too complicated, they're putting it to one side, and that's a social problem that could be fixed? Yeah, it's uh, for me, it was a combination. I mean, I, I certainly didn't sort of say, hey, I'm going to go and do a, an insurance business. And insurance is something that if you had asked me 10 years ago, is that an area that you'd like to explore? I would probably said like most people know. You know, that being said, my father passed away and he did have a little bit of life insurance that was like helpful to my family. So I could you know, actually feel and see the importance of that. Some of the data, certainly, you know, in the marketplace, if you think about COVID as just one example, you know, life insurance has actually been really strong in that they've come through on the promises. People who bought life insurance policies, even though there's this new thing that's really a catastrophe with COVID, the people who passed away ultimately did get what they bought from a life insurance perspective. And I think that's really powerful and therefore generating net new interest even among younger consumers. And when I was at RBC, where I spent three years where I met my co-founder, we were looking at subscriptions initially. So we built an application called Butter to help people track things like Netflix, Spotify, gym memberships. And as we started seeing people's transactions, we noticed that they had this thing that they would not raise their hand and say it was a subscription. But if you looked at sort of the makeup of it on their bank account statement or credit card, you know, insurance is a monthly premium, same amount every month, and you're getting some sort of value out of it. It's just more protection value. So it's not as top of mind. And part of our view is how do we try to make it a little bit more top of mind? Back right. to how do we get ahead of when you have, you know, a problem, you want to be able to have the insurance before that. 
and as we thought about like some of the new fintech businesses, like buy now, pay later was another one that I worked on while at RBC. They launched it as RBC Pay Plan. And so people don't go predominantly to the bank and say, get a loan to you know, go buy an Xbox or to buy a pair of shoes. But now with buy now, pay later, you actually are doing that within the checkout experience. And um, that in path, that in the process motion at the moment of truth, we thought was very powerful for insurance as well. And if we put it all together, it's, you know, social good, there's a large market, we would say underserved relative to, for instance, banking and banking infrastructure. We thought there was a great opportunity to create a lot of value for consumers, for partners, and then be able to build a big business out of it. Right, right. Well, I mean, I guess that is an interesting place to find yourself. And again, this is not your first venture. You mentioned a few minutes ago, the idea of like how investors hedge by building portfolios and whatnot. You as a serial entrepreneur, in a sense, like every venture has its own built-in risk profile. And you've been at this for, for 20 years. Like this is not your first rodeo. I'm all, Clearly yes. you have a bit of a tolerance for risk, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, it, it comes in waves. Uh, you know, I've worked at RBC for three years post-acquisition from my first business, Red Flag Deals. I was at Yellow Pages for two years. So definitely spent a fair amount of time in the corporate world. But you can see actually some of the opportunities while you're inside the large corporates because they can't necessarily move as fast as the nimble startups on the outside. And so for me, I think of this like management of risk is really a portfolio over time, right? So if you look at you know my career and if an individual, an entrepreneur in particular thinks about their career, they if they're a serial entrepreneur, maybe they can do five, I don't know if you can do more than five businesses, <laughs> but over the course of their lifetime. So some of those are going to work out better inevitably than others. And so some of them might not work out at all. And therefore, you're just taking a risk and a portfolio of risk in really a different way. And you got to be able to take some shots to be able to get some of the upside as well. And I think it's just more fun. So there's a lot of pain, but to be able to build something from nothing, to be able to build an organization you're proud of, to be able to build something that can uh, stand up and sort of succeed above and beyond when you're still there is something that with Red Flag Deals as an example, I'm very proud of as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've been in the corporate world, you've done your own startups, you, you began very young, and you mentioned that your family has an entrepreneurial streak. Do you find that that, I wouldn't say desensitizes you to taking another shot? I mean, I think some people would find coming strictly from the corporate world, doing their own new venture, a little more of a gut check than maybe someone like yourself who you got in pretty early, right, with your first company. Yeah, I think I, I was fortunate. And so, you know, the genesis of the first business was that it wasn't designed to be a business. At the time, this was 2000. I was in my last year of high school. So I wasn't thinking about creating something to generate revenue or venture capital or any of those types of things. I was just trying to learn a bit more about the internet. And there was nobody that was going to be around in 2000 to fund these companies anyways. This was the dot-com bust. Right. We were building something purely for a Canadian market. So it was not really, um, you know, venture investable, even if we wanted to think about it that way. And so what I, I would recommend and what I typically suggest, especially to um, entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs I might be talking to or mentoring is starting young ha has a lot of advantages because when you start and you're in high school, university, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have necessarily families and kids that you need to take care of. So you have less obligations and therefore maybe it's a little bit easier to take that risk at that point in time. I, I do think the ecosystem has sort of matured over time where 
you know, there's more venture capital, there's more accelerator programs, there's more public funding to be able to support people who do want to be entrepreneurs that are maybe in a more traditional job. And they don't have to take the risk all at once. They can do it on the side. There's plenty of success stories of people who are doing a business on the side, and then that ultimately turns into their full-time entrepreneurial venture, but they don't have to sort of cut all at once and cold turkey and become an entrepreneur. Yeah. And certainly I think compared to 20 years ago, it definitely seems that it's a bit easier nowadays, like not easy, don't get me wrong, but easier in the sense that back then, if you needed a tool or utility, often you had to code it yourself, like a content management system or a you know, a CRM or something, there's many people just hacking stuff together. Whereas now there's so many more things that are plug and play. Yeah. You you can just, you can assemble, you can do no code stuff. You can even start businesses on a Slack channel. Absolutely. And get that initial traction. So in a sense, it's easier and more enjoyable nowadays. And very much like you, when I talk to young people, first time starters that are in early mid twenties, I say, yeah, you know, you might, you're going to learn a ton. You might lose the shirt off your back, but you know, right now it's not that nice a shirt. In a (laughs) sense, the experience you gain is going to stand you in good stead when you decide maybe to take more of a corporate job at some stage. And and I think there's more and more of that as well. Like even sort of the large corporates, they're looking for entrepreneurial energy, experience, drive. You know, that's part of the reason I ended up at RBC to be able to help fill in some of those gaps as well. And so you become more valuable um, even to like traditional organizations and provide more in different types of value to them. And like you said, I think the key is like you as an individual, you know, you're learning a lot. And ultimately, I think you have to, you know, enjoy it. And it's not necessarily for everybody, but for the people that, you know, want to go through the ride, it's probably much more like a roller coaster and more ups and downs, but you get to go and create something. And it is a little bit easier these days than it was in the past. I think there's all sorts of people that can go and spin up a a Shopify site, for instance, and start selling direct to consumer. Everybody's a lot more interconnected. There's a whole worldwide marketplace that people couldn't get to nearly as easily, you know, 20 years ago. You know, at the same time, that does make it, you know, more competitive, more people are playing in the space. And I, I think the field moves. So the other area that today is probably more challenging feels a little bit more like what the internet was back in the 2000 era is more this like whole web three space where you can't go and use these no code tools, or there's not nearly as many of them, it's not as mature. There's all sorts of problems that need solving over there. And those problems are just opportunities for new entrepreneurs. So you as a, not a new entrepreneur, but new to this venture, this, this is a COVID baby, this company, right? And you had to tackle a very different reality than any other time in the past hundred years, really. Yeah, yeah. What about that process, starting a new venture in a time of deep uncertainty, kept you up at night? Um, I, I mean, I, I think some of this as an entrepreneur is like, you, you can do a certain amount of research and make some hopefully rational, educated guesses on you know what's going to happen where it's going to go and then there's a little bit of you know leap of faith as to like you knowing you know yourself and your team and how to make it happen so nobody knew back in you know march and we incorporated in in may and we we went full-time i did in october adrian went full-time in august of 2020 my co-founder um and so at that point we didn't necessarily know how this was going to play out we certainly didn't think it was going to take this long perhaps to get to a more state of normalcy but those are things out of your control and as an entrepreneur you know you work on things that are in your control and the things that are out of your control you try to manage and i think there's been both pros and cons from an insurance perspective are people doing you know more things digitally now because of that um yes you know is that something we thought about when we started the venture definitely no 
it, it's just, it's a ride. And, you know, I, I would still say today with, you know, war and everything else that's going on, this is unpredictable. And what you want to be able to do is build a team and bring the talent onto the team that is resilient, that you know, is passionate about the overall goal and objective. And I think, believe that you'll find a way, right? Like you can't predict what the path exactly will be. And I would say we've probably tweaked the way we go to market. We've probably tweaked the way that we think about different products or services. It's never a straight line, you know, but I, I've done that before in that, you know, I've had other ventures that didn't go necessarily well out of the gate and you sort of double back and make changes and you iterate and you try again. Um, and that's just part of the process. So, uh, you know, maybe the, the short answer for me is I, I try not to think about that too much. I think if you think about uh, what you want to be able to achieve and why you're doing it and then bring the right team to the table, the circumstances around it will sort of take care of itself. Well, that's a great answer, but it's not really the answer to my question, though. Right. It is indeed a great answer. But, you know, really what, I, what I'm searching for is like, OK, having said all that, you're managing what you can manage, you're taking action, what you can take action on. There's things that are your control and there's things that uh, you can push back a little bit. And there's global yeah. factors we can't none of us can control. But still, there must be something there that when you look at it, you go, you know what, this part is still bugging me. This thing is not working the way it should be. I kind of, you know, am wondering how this will come together for us. I can't quite see the path. I, I think, you know, when you're starting out, what you're most worried about is trying to get initial traction, right? Um, so, you know, the question is, how do you go out and do that? So for us, it's how do we go in, out and find insurers that we can work with? And then the other thing I would say is is talent. That would be the other thing that's like TBD challenging. Um, you know, how do you go find talent uh, in this remote work environment where you're competing against the giants of the world, the stripes, the ramps, they're all hiring within the Canadian market. So, you know, these would be things that I would say, like, are fairly common if you started in the COVID era. If the question is more, what do I, you know, really fear or what sort of scares me when I build business in that type of scenario? I think it's more about time, right? So how do you do that quickly enough so that you can go and be able to capture a particular market? How do you be able to meet partner obligations? How do you go and engage with talent and be able to close them fast enough? And for me, uh, I'm, I'm not young anymore. So, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do we move the venture along more quickly, hopefully things I've learned in the past, so that we don't have to spend five years trying to get to product market fit. You know, we can find a couple of big anchor partners that makes us at least get to this like baseline sustainable level. I think you know, Paul Graham sometimes talks about it as like default alive and getting to that state is really the hard part afterwards you can figure a way out right so if time if speed is the governing factor how do you create time how do you manage to pull more speed into your organization then without it becoming a breakaway train yeah we're still uh, learning and yeah we, we i would say we don't um, necessarily know the right answers to that question i think one of the things that was actually a recommendation from a, another entrepreneur that helped me a lot and my co-founder a lot was just to get some help from like a meeting scheduling sort of executive assistant type basis. And, you know, we're remote, so uh, we could find some remote help like that as well. And that actually helps squeeze out, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20% of your time that you're going back and forth with different partners, investors and scheduling calendars. So that as a very practical matter, um, I would say helped a lot. Tooling, I would say we're still not a hundred percent there yet, but how do we get better remote tooling? How do you go and be able to use some of the infrastructure that other people now have built out? GitLab has a whole document guide of what they do from a, a remote basis. And then how do you find other people on the team that can help you sort of take on some of the load? 
because ultimately it's a talent game. And so you got to go find people who can take on some of the responsibilities for you over time, find some advisors who might be able to give you really good advice, all things that can incrementally like speed things up. And I, I don't think it's a, you know, there's a silver bullet. You do one thing and magically you're going to get 20 hours back. Um, it's all these little things that you sort of build up and maybe you can squeeze out another 30% worth of productivity versus where you were at at the beginning. This podcast is being brought to you by the folks at Shred Capital. At Shred Capital, we're looking for ferocious startups and fearless founders that are taking their first or ideally their second swing at a game-changing new venture. We provide business optimization consulting. We provide non-dilutive financing. We provide a shoulder to cry on, and we want to lead, seed, or syndicate your first equity investment. So check us out, Shred Capital. That's at shredcapital.com or Shred Capital at any of your favorite social media platforms. So do you find being a remote company, is that a force multiplier potentially where you, again, you're not constrained now to, well, I'm based in the city, therefore my talent stack has to come from this place. Are you now finding that it's like, well, we can theoretically at least absorb talent from any place and we have ways of working through it? Or do you, do you worry that that's going to actually start to reverse itself as we come out of this pandemic and approach something more akin to 2019? Or is this a one-time change? Um, I think it's a pretty dramatic change because I think there'll be people that want to work remote and people that want to work in person. And and that's more like, I don't think it's as black and white as that because even the people that want to work remote might want to hop into a shared WeWork, uh, you know, once a week or something to that effect. But the mode has to either, you know, predominantly, and we think of it as remote first, or it's more office first, and individuals, talent will sort of self-select as to what they want. So the opportunity, like you said, you can hire from a lot more pockets. The con is you're competing with all other folks that are hiring from a lot more pockets. We still have to learn how to work across all different time zones, I would say, is still a challenge and how to make sure we document things and sort of write things down more than perhaps we did in the past. But you know, we've definitely chosen and made the explicit decision to be remote first. And I think where it gets a little bit more challenging for companies is people that operated perhaps like in an in, in office environment. Now they're trying to figure out, you know, how far do they go on the spectrum of remote versus in person. But because we started in the pandemic and because it was like day one remote first, we think that's pretty clear for the folks that we're going after. But it, it, remote work is not without its challenges. Even for me, I, I feel like it's a little bit more you know, uneven. There's sort of some days where you're staring at the same four walls every single day. Maybe you're just not as motivated as if you were in a crowd with a bunch of people in the office. And so I have to find things um, every once in a while to try to like change the scenery. And, you know, I, I bought an under the desk uh, sort of elliptical just to mix things up a little bit and, you know, all sorts of different things that, that I try to try to just not make it so monotonous, uh, which you know, can definitely be the case if you're just working in the same place all day and sleeping in the same place even. Yeah, it's true. And, and also what you do is you do lose that kind of hidden ambulatory stimulation, like just going to an office and walking through rooms and going to get a cup of coffee and stuff. It, it, it triggers like a mind-body harmony. Whereas I found for the first year of the pandemic, I was, as you say, staring at the same four walls and I got kind of a step tracker at one point and it was shocking how my level of activity plummeted during the week compared to the weekend. Like the amount of steps taken collapsed. Yeah, and, and I think like physical health, mental health, it's a challenge and it's back to, I think it's still like something that, you know, we and 
most remote organizations are still just in this like learning phase. And even though we're maybe a year and a half in, like, you know, what does this mean five years down the road, sure. right? Yeah. Um, for remote work and how do people feel back then and how do they feel now and in the future? And so maybe, you know, we'll need to do more in person. I still feel like the pandemic is just, um, you know, starting to finish, but we'd love to do a quarterly company offsite um, where everybody can meet up. We just need to make sure that it makes sense from a so overall like public health perspective. Yeah, yeah, of course. Interesting. So swinging back to the idea of insurance and your outreach to people, you're, you're direct consumer, right? Um, we do do direct consumer, but we work with distribution partners in essence. So it's more B2B to C, mm-hmm. but they're yep. consumer lines of products. So, right. uh, you know, life insurance, cyber, home, auto for individual consumers. Yes. So in that space, how do you confront or address or at least recognize the, if not fear, the uncertainty, because you're in a product where it's kind of about uncomfortable conversations, you know, health insurance, what could go wrong? Fire insurance, what could go wrong? All all insurance is sort of about talking to people about their anxieties. Is that something that is a particular or unique challenge? Because I'm sort of trying to think of another product where every part of it is sort of about an uneasiness, you know, maybe like, you know, there's there's not nothing joyful about thinking about well what happens if you know something terrible happens does the psychology of the end customer how do you address that yeah and i think that's one of the things we're trying to do back to trying to get them at the right moment in time so we'll work with folks that offer online wills for instance so they're already in the mode of possibly think about you know what happens if they pass and who do they need to notify and what do they need to have and so that would be a good natural entry point to talk about life insurance and if they need incremental coverage for instance the other thing we try to do is we actually are mostly bundling in that you know we offer not just life insurance but if you come to gowalnut.com and you wanted to purchase a term life policy we give you the option of adding Headspace for mental wellness, ClassPass for physical fitness, Dashlane for digital security and password management. And that's exactly designed to address what you mentioned is how do we give people some you know love and joy today, value they can use today in addition to this protection value. We think it'll hopefully help them get across the line, but we actually think it'll just be good for the individual as well, right? They'll get something out of it that they can use today because otherwise insurance is one of these things that you know, is actually in many cases, especially life, like a very selfless thing where you're trying to make sure you're taking care of other people. And so people probably also want something to be able to help take care of themselves. And so if we can help you with your mental health, physical fitness, digital security, hopefully you'll live a longer, happier, healthier life and everybody you know, ultimately wins in the end. But the notion of trying to pair the thought around protection and, you know, these adverse events alongside things that can give you joy and value today is part of what we're trying to do and is part of how we distribute. We uh, work with a company called uh, Optimity. So they track your steps and help you take care of uh, health and wellness. And if you go and download their app, they have an option for Optimity Premium, which has some group life insurance coverage in there. But you also get access to Headspace and Dashlane and ClassPass so that you can be able to use those things today to make your life better. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it seems like there is this, you know, we're always looking for things that will fill gaps and do it more efficiently when we're in the startup space and, and hopefully catalyze a new way of thinking and kind of pulling people around. And, you know, it, it is really tough to kind of find good angles into the insurance mentality or the insurance space. And I think there are a lot of lines of business that have that challenge of like, I need you to think about your life in a different way. Right. Like I imagine red flag deals didn't have that particular challenge, uh, let's say, about you know needing people to rethink or uh, imagine things holistically. It, it, it's 
I, I mean, I think everybody's, like you said, every business has like a, maybe a variation of, of that challenge. So even for red flag deals, for us at the beginning, it, you know, this is 2000. So our, right. our challenge was trying to get people to buy things online. Um, and at that time, you know, people were worried about, oh, is it safe to provide my credit card mm-hmm. online? And we built a whole bunch of education and content around that. So, you know, it's just a different point in time, but everyone will have those types of challenges. Uh, and the opportunity for the entrepreneur is like, you know, every challenge is an opportunity in that it hasn't been done yet, right? By the time everybody's shopping online, the winner for Canadian online shopping content would have been crowned already. So right. if the industry is mature and you're just trying to like chip away at existing market share, you know, that's sort of one way of thinking. And then the other way is like, how do you create new markets, new opportunities? You know, what we're doing today is probably a little bit of both. We want to help people get coverage younger, perhaps in places that they didn't necessarily think of as entry points for insurance. But we also want to help people that have very natural traditional insurance motions. If you're getting mortgage, for instance, to be able to easily leveraging the data get the home insurance coverage that you need to be able to close a mortgage. So for us, it's trying to facilitate sort of both motions of thought. Interesting. So swing it around a little bit, given that you've kind of been there, done that, you've exited, you've done the big corporate thing, thinking back and reflecting, maybe even, you know, considering some of the newer founders that you've talked to or mentored, what would you say is kind of the one addressable fear that comes up a lot in conversations in a way that you would suggest their fear could be addressed? It's a common anxiety. It's a common neuroses. Here's how you got around it. Here's how these new people, these new prospects could get around it. Um, I, I think one of like, the fears is this whole imposter syndrome thing. And, and I would say everybody, myself included, still feel that way. So if you're pitching venture capital firms, for instance, you're, you're pitching for money, how do you feel like you're you know, good enough to almost like deserve them to write you a check, right? And how do you sort of change the, the mind frame a little bit where the entrepreneurs are actually the ones that are in short supply and the capital these days is actually something that is much more abundant. Same thing for when you're going out and sort of pitching employees, right? Like in some way, shape or form, you're sort of always pitching. And so if you're trying to hire somebody and they have an offer from a Shopify or a Stripe or more traditional folks, like the RBCs of the world, like, you know, how do you convince them that your company is sort of better and worth it to be able to take the leap? And what can you do to to practically be able to overcome that? Um, You know, really, I think the answer is like, uh, just volume and short term memory loss. So how do you try to be able to compartmentalize the conversation so that even if it didn't work out the way you wanted to, that you don't overthink that and just keep going and keep pushing and keep having those conversations because you're learning a little bit every single time. So the overall sort of advice is start now. Don't worry about it so much. Same thing. Like if you want to be an entrepreneur, you can start part-time. You can do it full-time if you want, but don't worry so much about like uh, some of the risks. You can manage that and start just going out and having conversations. Don't be afraid to ask the questions. You have to be willing to ask in order to get an answer. And so if you don't do outreach, and I would say cold outreach these days, like with LinkedIn, with Twitter, with all these channels, sales, investment, whatever it might be, definitely don't be shy with cold outreach. Um, The worst they can say is no. Really true. You know, that's a really good point. The worst they can say is no. And on the one hand, that's like, okay, that's no, no big deal. On the other hand, you know, people have a hard time processing no. People have a hard time dealing with no, especially when they're putting it out there. They're putting out, this is me. This is my idea. I put a lot of thought into it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, et cetera, et cetera. And then to hear a no, and not just one no, but maybe a lot of no's. Is there any way around that where it gets easier? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, 
how do you how do you make that easier for people you know um i i don't like hearing no's and i get a lot of no's um i i don't know that uh i don't know that it's like easier but uh what you need is you need some yeses to go along with the no's um ultimately right so i'm happy to hear 100 no's if i get the one yes and the one yes makes a meaningful impact then it's okay and if you never get a yes, then that's probably a signal that you might need to go back and tweak something. That's really like focus on the wins, expect the no's. And in many ways, if you just look at it from a pure math and take yourself out of the equation, um, you're just going to get way more no's than you are going to get um, yeses. So celebrate the wins and make sure that basically I would say get enough sleep. And these are just like simple things that you can do so that you can be able to process and take the feedback even from the nose. And sometimes I, I don't f- necessarily find the feedback from the nose to be like super helpful. Like we debate this sometimes is it's an investor or a customer and they say, no, I'm out or I'm, I don't want to buy it for whatever reason. Um, and you ask them, why is their feedback valuable? I mean, the answer is maybe, but ultimately they didn't buy. Um, I'm in many ways more curious about the yeses, you know, what made them be able to convert, what made them get over the line, the no, they can sort of say whatever they want. But in the end, it's a no. Um, and you just have to sort of move on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that triangulation is important, because I think what that does is it lets you, again, manage the anxiety in that case, you, you get to look at different people, what they've said, why they've said it. And, you know, I think in some ways that takes the sting out because there may be something truthful that wasn't perhaps obvious that floats to the surface. And only by that process can you look at it. And I think it also, it takes away a bit of the personal feel of a no because, you know, you hate getting it. But if it's a consensus, if it's a committee, if it's a several things, perhaps easier to digest. But it, it is a good lesson for entrepreneurs. Like, you know, if you're afraid of no, it's the wrong calling. So you have to get comfortable with the no. You've got to get, and the no has to become your friend in a way. And I think it's it sort of, you naturally get sort of desensitized to it when you get enough no's. Um, so I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, or that might mean I'm doing something wrong. But uh, know, they, just... they still kind of hit, they still, they still kind of hit for me, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I got to be honest with you, they still kind of hits. And I guess I try to make that very mindful when I'm the one saying no. Yeah, uh, that's true. I was well. saying, hey, you know what, I've, I know this is not the answer you're looking for. But let's talk about what it means, right? Yeah, and I think it's back to then, like, how can you be helpful, right? Just because mm-hmm. um, you get a no doesn't mean you can't be helpful. And maybe it's the you know sort of wrong timing. Maybe it's something else that doesn't mean that you know the business is not going to work. It's just not necessarily a fit for that individual. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I would say, sort of on both sides, is important because I do angel investing on the side as well. Um, is to try to get to an answer like fairly quickly so you don't drag it out. And on the receiving end, same thing. Like, yeah. you know, I'd rather get a quick no. And oh. maybe that's the other way to think about it. If you were successful in getting to a no with one call, uh, that's not a bad thing. That's probably like, you know, 50% as good as actually getting a yes yeah. so that you're not wasting too much time on it. The worst is the long maybe. Exactly. You know, like when when the no is really going to be the answer and maybe they even realize it because then you keep on hoping, you keep on trying, you send them more stuff, another deck, another meeting, another cup of coffee, you know, yeah, talk to right. an associate. And the no is, it's going to get to a no. It's already <laughs> at a no. They just haven't told you yet. And uh, man, you know, it just reminds me of like, you know, it's, it all comes back to junior high. Getting a no, getting rejected, it's the end of the world in some ways. Yeah. Or, you know, you just take it as a lesson and, and you move on to the next prospect. Hmm. What's worse? Last question. What's worse, the no or the ghosting? Um, I, I, I guess probably the no is still worse. The, the ghosting. I, I mean, yeah, 
you know, you can follow up only so much and then you already know if it's a no, but like you said, no still hurt a little bit. So if they give you a direct no and you really wanted that particular customer or really wanted that particular investor or particular person to join your team, you know, the no probably still stings a little bit more. Yeah, true enough. Well, hey, listen, on that note, I hope you don't hear many more no's in your journey with your company, Walnut. Walnut, is it walnut.com or go walnut? Uh, it's go walnut.com. Yes, Maybe go. one day when we raise enough money, we can yeah. go get walnut.com. <laughs> hey, yeah, I imagine that was a toughie, huh? Okay. So listen, it's been wonderful chatting with you today. And I really, it's got me thinking, it's actually got me thinking about the whole insurance thing. The thing maybe part of my brain avoids because I don't want to think about what happens if. Right? Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's time I'm going to go home and do a little bit of, uh, you know, soul searching on that front and uh, see if I even have insurance. Good Lord. Okay. Listen, Derek, wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much. And for folks, if you're actually curious as to what Google Walnut does, if you want to take a gig with them, they're remote and uh, looking for talent. Uh, we'll drop that stuff in the, uh, the page below. Derek, thanks again. Thanks for having me, Matt. So, Chris and Mike, we've seen a lot of, by now, a lot of founders on the show so far. And, you know, we try to get them to talk about the things that bug them, that bother them, things that are beneath the hype, yeah, sometimes well beneath the hype. And sometimes it's a little trickier to, to really get to the root of it. But I, I thought we did a pretty good job today with our, with our friend. Mm -hmm. I mean, Derek's got a ton of startup experience, which is really interesting. And, you know, he's almost more so than any of the other guests that we've spoken to has sort of the, the most drive to be a startup founder as opposed to saying, hey, I've noticed there's a specific gap in this industry that I'm already working in. Here's how I can solve it. It seems like he loves being a part of startups. So I think that for him, while there are a lot of lessons that he's learned along the way, I think he's constantly learning and relearning those things because he's always kind of in that headspace. And I think that in many ways, that's a powerful driver for him to sort of use that fuel with whatever the other venture that he's sitting in front of might be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, that that seems like for him, this is a very useful mentality. It is a little different, isn't it? Some of the folks we've talked about, no? Yeah, I mean, for some people, because maybe they're leaving it for the first time, or maybe because this is sort of a make or break situation, and if this particular startup doesn't work, it's not like they've got a bunch of other ideas or they're willing to sort of jump in and pivot into something else because it's really specific. Whereas I feel like for Derek, again, he's constantly viewing the world through this lens of where efficiencies can come from. And because there's an endless amount of that, I think that he's kind of always in that space and always seeing things as to how you can use these solutions to drive things forward. And because of that, I think that there's something really powerful about the mentality that he holds to be able to help drive him through and to be able to keep that confidence and, and just stay hungry. You know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of the baseball. You got guys that are, you know, when it comes to hitting, they're they're always able to get get some contact, right? Like they're not necessarily hitting for distance, you know, they're not necessarily but they're always able to get on the ball. They're they're always engaging with the pitcher. They're not letting anything go by. They're gonna take a swing, right? They're gonna get some wood on the ball, right? And he reminds me of that kind of player. I mean, you just think that there's just a matter of time before you, his mentality, his perseverance, his talents kind of connects with a big opportunity. And man, that, that ball's going over the fence. Like, I, I, I kind of got the sense that, that he's got that potentiality, you know? Mm -hmm. And definitely a leadoff guy in the sense that he's able to generate that energy on his own as opposed to waiting around for other people to do it because he's been around it enough that he says, okay, I see this idea has got legs. I know how to get on the first base with this. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I thought those guys win games. They win games. Mm -hmm. So, hey, thank you for setting this one up. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks to our guest, Derek Sato. Interesting conversation, as always. Looking forward to hearing what comes next to him. We'll circle back. We'll let you folks know uh, in the 
the home audiences that where these things are going. And uh, as always, glad you could join us. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends. Tell your friends about us. Tell your friends about Walnut Insurance. Go walnut.com. Great company, great founder, great story. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Okay, so that does it for the day. The pod is done. I want to thank our guest. I want to thank our producer, Mike, in the control room for all of his thoughts and his feedback and his wisdom. And of course, his technical skills. That's what makes all this happen. Our podcast is What Freaks Out Founders, where we explore not just the good stuff, but especially the bad stuff, the anxieties, the neuroses, those things that go bump in the night, and not just for the founder, but for the investor. And in our experience, that's true whether you're in Silicon Valley, you're in New York, you're in Berlin, or you're in Saskatoon. It's these common shared things that we're all working really hard to overcome. So check us out online, wherever good podcasts are found. And if you want to check out our sponsors at Shred Capital at shredcapital.com, they can be found online and on all your favorite social platforms, Shred Capital tweets, Shred Capital shares, and Shred Capital supports. So hopefully they work for you. Hopefully you come back for the next episode. And if you have an idea or maybe an especially neurotic founder that you'd like us to talk with, we hope you get in touch. Have a great day.